Hello, friends. This is Dr. Gracie Pozo Christie of the Catholic Association, and you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm in studio today in D.C., and I'm joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. Oh, should I call you Ashley McGuire Samuelson? Ashley, Ashley McGuire is fine. Ashley McGuire <laughs> Let's keep is it fine. simple. Anyway, welcome, Ashley. Thank you. It's so great to be with you. I'm sorry. I know. I, I actually, I don't even know which is your maiden name and which is your Samuelson is my maiden name. Oh, it's Samuelson. Swedish. Okay. Well, you look Swedish. Yeah, a little bit. McGuire is my married name, and it's obviously Irish. It's obviously Irish. Well, <laughs> obvious to you. It's all a mystery to me. But um, anyway, thank you for being here with me. It's wonderful to to be in the same room with you instead of remotely because I'm normally in Miami. So it's great to be together. And today we have a really fun show. I, we, we're doing a show today on feminism and sex differences. And we have two experts joining us today. They both work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. One is Mona Charon, who wrote a book recently called Sex Matters, which is excellent. And uh, Mary Hassan is our other guest. And we're going to have a really fascinating conversation about feminism, which is something that both you and I think about a lot as women and, and wives and mothers. Yeah. No, we're very lucky to have both of them. They're, they're sort of idols to me. I've, I look to Mona Charon as sort of the ideal iconoclastic feminist. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and Mary, same thing. She's just a, an incredible scholar. She's somebody who really bridges the the divide between sort of the world of theology and, and the world of sort of public interest. And she knows how to talk about issues in ways that we can all understand. So we're very lucky to have them. That's right. What's interesting, I think, about this particular conversation we're going to have with each of them separately. Unfortunately, we couldn't get them together in the same room. That would have been really fun to have mm-hmm. them together mm-hmm. in the same room. But what's interesting is that feminism is right now on a collision course with another big issue right now, a big ideology, which is transgender ideology. And we're watching that sort of play out. Is 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 the transgender movement the natural progression of feminism? Yeah, no, and I think that's one major fault line. I think there's a lot of other big fault lines. You know, you're seeing people split over, you know, women having the right to choose to prioritize their families um, and still, you know, call themselves a feminist or um, sort of divisions about, you know, within the feminist movement about can you be a pro-life feminist? So I think this is a really important time to be talking about the topic of feminism and what does it mean for the future and, you know, how can the, what sort of light can the church shed on that? Well, this is, uh, we have a, a great hour ahead of us and I hope our listeners stick with us. After this break, we'll be back with Mona Charon. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your host, Gracie Christie, with my co-host, Ashley McGuire. We are speaking today with Mona Charon, who is one of the most widely read syndicated columnists in America. Her column is regularly featured on more than 150 websites and newspapers. She is a New York Times bestselling author, and today she's here to talk to us about her latest book, Sex Matters. Welcome, Mona. Thank you. Great to be here. So one of the things that I find so interesting that you you talk about in your book, and we're seeing this continue to um, unfold every day, it seems like another story, 
um, where we see, I, th I mean, I think a really good example is um, what's happening in women's sports, uh, where more and more stories are coming out about um, women being defeated or having their records broken um, by uh, men who self-identify as women. And so this is sort of the fruits, the sort of uh, final frontiers of the denial of uh, sex differences. And it's sort of colliding with feminism in a sense that, you know, some of the feminists from decades ago really fought to elevate women's sports, to carve out spaces for women's sports. Um, how is this going to play out? I mean, it seems like a real fault line between um, modern feminism and the sort of denial of sex differences. And why aren't feminists um, more outspoken about something that's really clearly starting to undermine uh, the rights and opportunities for uh, girls and women? So one of the things that uh, feminism has been known for for many decades, and it continues to be true, is that there are all different strands of feminism. And there's vigorous disagreement among them. So I would say there are a, a number of feminists who are very angry and upset about trans women um, competing in, in sports and being allowed into uh, women's restrooms and so on and so forth, um, who feel that this is just an invasion of the rights of women. Um, and I, I can understand how they feel, and I think that their, their point of view is, is not unreasonable. But I would say that it kind of, you have to always look for, like, where did we start getting confused about sexuality and about men and women and that led to the moment we're in? And as I argue in Sex Matters, it actually began with the second wave feminists themselves who were really angry about the fact that there were differences between men and women and they sought to deny those differences. In fact, Gloria Steinem once said that it was un-American for, for scientists even to study sex differences in medicine. Hmm. Um, you know, they, there was this effort to say everything is socially constructed and it's, it, if, if not for culture, then men and women would be exactly the same. Well, that's a denial of nature. It's a denial of reality in the name of political correctness that has now come full circle because now the feminists find themselves confronted with people who were born male but who say they should be able to compete against women who were born female in athletics. And we know that men are bigger, stronger, faster, and all that, and uh, women are at a disadvantage in that situation. And it, it arises from this, this willingness to sort of suspend disbelief and say, yeah, we don't have to pay any attention to nature or science or any of that. We can pretend that there aren't any sex differences. Well, now they're being forced to contend with people who have bought into that. They say, you're right. There's Everything is socially constructed, and I am now going to be taken as a woman because I say I'm a woman, and you have to accept that. I feel like there ought to be minimal standards for a man to declare himself a woman. He ought to have uh, certain things removed or added, and um, a certain level of hormones should be higher or lower depending on where he's aiming. I, but I don't see any sign of that. Uh, that. That to me seems like the most basic of requirements. You would think. Look, I, I, my view on this is I don't really want to quarrel with people who are adults and make decisions about how they want to be seen in the world. And if they want to 
change their bodies through plastic surgery and hormone injections and the rest of it and, and present themselves as the other sex, okay. You know, I'm not going to argue that there's anything you know, inherently problematic about it, unless they compete on the team for the, uh, uh, you know, against women. But um, but what I do really object to and I'm worried deeply about is is what we're doing to children. Yes. Uh, the children who are now being put on hormone blockers and who are, you know, just going through normal stages of development, uh, we have lost our minds on this topic. I mean, at our synagogue, I see kids who are, you know, and this is an Orthodox synagogue, but there are kids who are being dressed as the other sex. They're really little. They're preschoolers. Oh. Um, and I remember that I myself, when I was a little kid, I don't remember exactly how old, maybe kindergarten or somewhere in that neighborhood, I was the one, the only girl in our family of boys, and I had a lot of male friends in the neighborhood. And I, for a little while, decided it'd be better to be a boy. And I told everybody to call me Timmy. Really? And I wanted to wear boys' clothes and do boy things and play with boy trucks and that sort of thing. I didn't want anything to do with dresses or girl stuff. Guess what? Normal development came along. I outgrew it utterly. And I'm very delighted to be female. In fact, later in life, I kind of felt sorry for men that they don't get all the wonderful experiences that we get. But, um, But the fact is, I know that in today's world, if a little girl at that age says, I want to be called Timmy, I don't want to wear dresses, I want to play with trucks, et cetera, et cetera, the stereotyping that the feminists themselves said was so terrible 40 years ago. They said, you know, don't have girls play with dolls, don't have boys play with trucks, because that's a stereotype that society is imposing. Now who's imposing stereotypes? Now if a kid dis- displays that kind of, con- you know, non-sex conforming behavior, we immediately l- slap a stereotype on them, but we call it they must be transgender. You know, it goes hand in hand with this idea that they say where there's fluid, right? Everything is fluid. Uh, but now you say Johnny picks up a doll at the age of four. Right. And he is immediately shunted down this uh, path of just sort of, I mean, it's heinous, the things it that are done heinous. to children. Well, I is. think it's one of the greatest ironies of the whole denial of sex differences is that it seems to have been nothing seems to have been more effective at really stamping sex stereotypes. Right. Um, Mm. So I want to change topics and ask you about uh, something different from your youth. Another uh, part of your book that I really enjoyed was um, your your story of of coming around on the life issue. And, um, you know, so you were somebody who became pro-life before it was cool and rebellious. I think now the movements... <laughs> Is it cool? It, it's become cool. We have pro-lifers with purple hair and um, secular pro-lifers. Um, but, you know, it, it was a good... Reading that, uh, your your story was a good moment for me to reflect and remember that it it's cool now because um, people had the courage um, and the the ability to um, think apart from the fray in a time when there was so much groupthink. Um, I'm sure our listeners would, would love to hear sort of your, your story of how it is that you came to care about that issue. You know, maybe because of my own experience, I, I mischaracterize or misunderstand others. Maybe I assume too much that people are just going to sort of 
study an issue and try to figure out what the right path is, um, whereas lots of times we don't make decisions that way. But, um, but in this case, and many times I don't make decisions that way, I freely admit. But in this case, I had no views about abortion. So this was in the late 70s. Um, and I, you know, so abortion had been legal for not very long, everywhere, legal everywhere. Um, but um, so, yeah, I was in a class in college on the philosophy of law. We were all assigned a difficult, thorny legal matter to do a presentation about to the class. And mine, I was assigned to do abortion. And so I started reading about it and I started looking into it and with a really a blank slate. You know, I didn't have preconceived ideas. And I found the rationale for, um, for unlimited abortion to be so weak and pathetic compared with the really thoughtful and morally um, centered views of the pro-life side. And at the time, it was, uh, it was not hard for me to say, you know, the only logical moral position that I can come to is because what I started out saying was, you know, that I had my instinct was, and I think I speak for many in this regard. My instinct was, well, I certainly don't think you should be able to abort a baby at nine months gestation because that's like infanticide. But what about the very beginning? I mean, that doesn't seem so bad, just a clump of cells. But what I realized was, and so I thought, well, you just have to find a spot somewhere during the pregnancy where it's it's uh, still okay and find that li- draw dividing line. But of course, once you try to look for a dividing line that makes moral sense, there really isn't one. I mean, it's all arbitrary after conception. Exactly. And so I came to the conclusion and I presented it to the class that uh, I thought the pro-life position had the better arguments. Um, morally and philosophically, and um, the students were just, they were dumbfounded, <laughs> and so was the professor. That's not what they were expecting. <laughs> well, my husband, who came, who came to, he's, he's from a liberal background, secular liberal background. He came to being pro-life in the exact same way. He yeah. started by saying, okay, well, Nine months is wrong, yeah. so eight months must be wrong, seven months, <laughs> yeah. and he exactly. just couldn't find the stopping point. And right. he talks That's about it. this, he gives talks, and he, he talks about this process of walking it backwards and saying, I didn't know where to stop, so I had to stop at conception. Yeah, me too. Mona, what's your advice for um, young women today who are trying to navigate the sort of choppy waters of modern feminism, you know, the denial of sexual realities, really the denial of sort of natural womanhood. I mean, I'm always struck by the Pew number that finds, for example, that, you know, 80% of women would prefer either part-time, women who are mothers to young children, part-time or no work at all. Um, and, you know, all the talk about having it all, I mean, it gets it gets sort of overwhelming. And um, so, you know, what would you say to the young women who are listening, um, the young moms, the young women who hope to be moms? Um, what's what's your advice for, for this? Uh, so the advice I would give is, um, is going to vary um, depending on where women find themselves. Um, the, uh, for, so let me say on behalf of the feminists that I do think it's a good development that not all women now feel that pressure to be mothers. I think many women chose to be mothers because they didn't think they had any other option in the past, and some of them weren't very good mothers. 
So I think women who don't want children should definitely choose to do something else. So that's a good thing. Um, but most women do want children, and most women want family life. And they want it in a way that is it's, it's clear from the data um, they, that, that being home with their young children is more important to them than it is to men. And, but you have to go back to the, the origins here. Our society has placed so much emphasis on your self-actualization and your career choices and what you're going to do to make money and to, you know, uh, express yourself, which is, which is fine. And we're blessed that we live in a wealthy society where we all get to do these things. But what I stress to women is life is long and you have, will have plenty of opportunities, God willing, if you have a long and healthy life, to do it all, just not all at once. And that children do not take care of themselves. And besides, if you farm out the care of your children to somebody else, uh, it can work, but you also miss out on a lot of the great joys of life. And um, I made decisions to cut back at work, as many, many millions of women do all the time. Uh, very willingly. I was glad I had the privilege, actually, of being able to spend time with my kids and be the, the you know, influence on their, their lives. Um, and so I, I urge women to make sure they have their priorities straight and to remember that the most important things, I said this to my three sons, I would have said it to three daughters if I had them, the most important decision you will ever make is not about what you're going to do for a career, where you're going to live, or anything like that. It's who you marry. That's right. Make sure you marry a person of good character who is going to be a lifelong helper and maid and, and someone um, that you can trust. Those things are the foundation of a happy and balanced life. And I think there's been way, way, way too much emphasis on career versus family. We need to go back to more of an emphasis on family. I, I told the kids at Yale uh, just the other night, I said, look, you know, so many kids, that I, so many young uh, students that I interviewed for the book told me that when I asked them what their plans were, they would say, well, I would say, do you think, do you think about kids and marriage and so on? And I was talking to men and women, by the way, because I think both sexes have to think these things through. And... Um, they would say the same thing over and over again. You know, well, I've got this externship, and then I'm going to be doing my PhD, and then I'm going to, or I'm going to medical school, or whatever it was, going into business. And they said, and you know, I think the personal stuff will take care of itself. Mm. And I stressed that you know what, flip it, flip it the other way around. You're at Yale. The professional stuff <laughs> is going to take care of That's itself. Right. You're going to be fine, no matter what you do, in all likelihood. I mean, you know, unless you're a complete screw-up, you're going to be fine in your professional life. It's your personal life. You're much more in danger of screwing up because you don't take it seriously and you don't think of it as a priority. And uh, so that's, that's one of the things that I would say. Now, of course, because we've had so much family dissolution over the last several decades, especially in the lower and middle classes, there are fewer marriageable men out there because there are so many men who've grown up now without their fathers at home who are not really thriving and they're not the kind of men that women want to marry. And that is a really serious problem for, 
for women to to find someone that they can share a life with. And sometimes it means marrying someone who's older um, or already, you know, divorced or something like that. But um, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing. And if they're there, if the Pew surveys are right, something like 25 percent of millennials will never marry. Which is very sad. That's very sad and bad for our society. Bad for our society, bad for the people involved. And all I would say is let's start reversing the trends that have gotten us where we are. Let's get back to marriage and family and prioritizing it as something that's important for men, women, and especially children. My, my oldest two children are in their early 20s. They finished college already. And they both have significant others. And they're talking about marriage. And my husband and I are encouraging them. Yeah. Say this, you love this, this person you're dating. He or she loves you. And go ahead and get married. We support you 100%. We think it's a wonderful thing. I married at 23, and, and it's worked out. But what amazes me is how many parents around me, when I say this, mm-hmm. they, they fight back. Yes, I've they seen the back. same thing. And they thing. say, but Gracie, what's your hurry? Yeah. They're so young. I, mean, I have so a 24-year-old and a almost 23-year-old. They say, no, these people are very young and they need to wait. And yeah. I always say, well, what are they waiting for? Are they waiting to grow old and cynical? <laughs> I mean, here they are. Right. Right? Waiting for their fertility to decline, as exactly. it will, after the age of 30. So I think yeah. we can be sometimes our children's worst enemies. Yeah, I totally agree. I've seen parents, I just saw one the other night, saying when it was she was told her 30-year-old son was no. thinking of getting married. Yes. She said, no, he's too young. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. So, yeah, I, I too, um, am encouraging youthful marriage. My middle son is engaged, which is great. And um, And I, look, I mean, you know, people um, have forgotten that people that you can grow up together. I mean, it's it's certainly true that tw- your early 20s is quite young. You still have a lot to learn about the way the world works. But you will learn it together, you will develop together, and you will have that security of going through life with a partner. Um, I went through my whole 20s single. I don't really recommend it. It's not so great. <laughs> my, I know my husband and I did a lot of growing up those first few years of our marriage. Thank God. I think we were babies when we married yeah. in lots of ways. But mm-hmm. I think that we would have stayed babies a lot longer if we weren't married. Yes, I agree. That's another thing. Since I'm being, I'm, I'm bearing my soul here. When I was in my 20s and I was single and I was looking to get married, I can tell you that as I got like further and further along, I started realizing I'm getting weird and neurotic. I'm getting yeah, to be the kind exactly. of person who's like so set in my ways, I'm not going to want to compromise. You know, this isn't good. I need to be with someone and just learn how to, you know, be social again. It is a great danger we run as we it get is. older. It is. Yeah, we have to do everything exactly the same way all the time. Well, and mar- I'll t- marriage and children cure us of that, right? To, well, some of us. <laughs> some of us. But um, but and and then there's the fact, and this was said to me by a very um, wonderful young man that I interviewed at one of the colleges, um, and he was he was very um, deep and sincere, and he talked about the challenges of the hookup culture and. And he said one of them is that when you go through so many relationships in your 20s, you get calloused. You have to. You have to. And he said that makes us so much less able to have real love and intimacy later because we're so afraid of getting hurt again. 
I tell I tell young people that if they wait to get married, then the romance will all be gone. Mm-hmm. And the romance is very important. It is the very important. The romance can really get you over those, yes, those dry times. Yes, the rough times. times. Yes, agreed. Romance is important. Anyway, so we've been talking here with Mona Charon. What a delightful conversation. A conversation with consequences, we hope. And about her new book, Sex Matters. Uh, where can we find your book? Everywhere, Everywhere right? books are sold. Yes, Amazon, <laughs> uh, the easiest, I guess. But uh, anywhere you like, Barnes & Noble, all those places. Oh, well, I highly recommend it. All of us, I think, are puzzled these days at everything that's going on in the in, out there. And, and Mona's going to explain it all to us in her book. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Pozo-Christie, and I'm in studio in Washington, D.C. I can see the Capitol from where I'm sitting on a beautiful sunny day. And I'm with my colleague, Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association. And we just had the, the pleasure of speaking with Mona Charon on her book, Sex Matters. Now we have another expert on matters related to sex and feminism, her colleague, Mary Rice Hassan, who's the Cato Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much. So we had a very interesting discussion on feminism and why sexual differences uh, are important and how sexual differences are being erased and in a way that's maybe you can say erasing uh, a lot of the gains of feminism. And um, I know that you have, you have thought a lot on the topic and, and, and written a lot on the topic, but maybe you can bring us a slightly different perspective that can enrich us. <laughs> well, you're exactly right that this is one of the cultural moments, the cultural quandaries really, is, is we've become so confused about what it means to be a man or a woman so that as the transgender phenomenon has, has spread throughout the culture, people are really questioning you know, what what does it really mean to be a, a woman? And even feminists are, are divided over that topic. And, and I come from a very traditional background where women and men have very distinct stereotypical roles. And we, those things haven't changed very much, at least not in my generation. And they're, they're, of course, we're catching up now. But that, there was, there was, you know, there were, um, that was a problem. That was a problem to have only one way that you could be an authentic woman or an authentic man and that that had a lot to do with as a woman whether you had a profession or you had children and and some things were allowed and some weren't things that weren't wrong in themselves so right. i have a lot of sympathy for the breakdown of stereotypes but mm-hmm. i don't have any sympathy for the breakdown of of real sexual differences yeah and i oftentimes think of my own mom who uh, was one of three women in her law school class back in the 50s, and she decided to go to law school because she was in business school undergrad, and when it came time to get jobs, uh, she could not get hired, except as a secretary for her classmates, who she had done better than. <laughs> you know, so, so I think we really have to acknowledge that there were a lot of things that weren't right, and, and that feminism came out of that. It came out of that recognition that it's, women need to be able to use their talents and their gifts and, and to have the same legal rights and, and all of those things, but we've gotten way past that. We've lost sight of the truth about what it means to be a woman. Mary, my own mother went to law school um, in the uh, several decades ago, 
at a time when there was more than three women in her class, but she was definitely in the minority. Um, and she graduated and went on to start practicing law and then decided when she had her second child that she wanted to stay home and then went on to have five children. Um, and, you know, here we are decades later and there's still a raging debate about whether or not, you know, an education is quote unquote wasted on a woman who makes the choice to prioritize her family. And you're somebody who had eight children and is, you know, getting back into the professional world. Seven children, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Only seven. <laughs> Only seven. <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, you know, what are women today? How do we navigate these waters of um, what does it mean to be empowered, especially as it relates to motherhood and career? Yeah, great questions. I think um, things are different in a good way. There's more flexibility. But things are harder because women now, I, when I talk to young women, so often they're growing up thinking only about their career choices and they don't make time for relationships or they're not sure they see themselves as a mother because motherhood has become something that's sort of optional out there maybe um, – Instead of, I think it helps if we go back to the idea of sexual difference that, that we women, are, our bodies are different from men, and we women are made with literally room for another, you know, mm. with, our, with our wombs. There's, there's a place within us, and that doesn't mean everyone has to go on and have children, but it does. It's a reminder that, that all of us people are, are made for others and that that's where our fulfillment lies. So when I talk to young women, what I say is realize it's wonderful to have all these career opportunities, and and your education is tremendously important, whether you stay at home or, or whether you continue working. But the only place you're irreplaceable is in your relationships. Mm. You know? To me, it was a shock when mm. I I got married in medical school and had we had a baby right nine months later on the dot. The ba- well, ten months I should say, because that's that's how actually how long it takes to make a baby. So it was ten months later that our first son was born. And my entire world turned upside down and, and all my plans of being, I wanted to be an OBGYN, I think, back then. But And I realized I couldn't do that because I had to sometimes see my child. And I see, and, and over the years I've watched lots of professional women struggling with that moment. The moment when they say, oh wait, I can't have it all because right. I have to choose. I have to choose whether I'm going to be like a man, like most men, completely you know, with most of their lives devoted to their career, very comfortable because their wife's at home taking care of the children in, in emotional ways, not just physical ways, but being there for the children physically and doing the things that have to get done. And, and, uh, and, and no, we can't do it all because we, we can't leave that to someone else. It's too important to us, the taking care of the children. Right, and I think sometimes we forget that we don't have to do everything at once. That's right. You know, there's there are rhythms and phases to life. And when you give birth to a child, it's not just a question of what do I want. It's what does this child need mm-hmm. and what does our family need? And that if you're not asking the question in that way, you're going to struggle because you're going to feel these competing tensions and you're not going to know why because there's something in you that you're not going to want to ignore your child. But that that needs to be the basis for your question you know what do they need and then how do we make it possible for me to continue or to to do whatever else I'm inclined to do so I love your comment about um, the idea of women having room for another and it reminds me of a sign that I saw last weekend 
um, driving out in Virginia. It was in front of a Catholic church, and it was a picture of a womb with a baby inside, and it said, hate has no home here. And I loved that because I I I think there's something so um, profoundly radical about Christianity and that women especially are the messengers of sort of peace in a way that um, that's unique to us. And so, you know, you're you're really knowledgeable about the church and um, her teachings on womanhood. What do you see as some of the most misunderstood teachings about the church and some of the most essential for women today? Um, in a culture that really misunderstands womanhood? I think the first thing is the church has has been a champion of women's dignity. And long before society started recognizing that, the church has has spoken about and reaffirmed that women have equal dignity. Simply because Mm -hmm. we're, we're human beings and we're made in the image and likeness of God, we have a dignity and value. And that's one of the messages that our culture is still missing. Right? We measure our dignity and, and value according to what others think of us. According how much to we can produce. How much we produce, how much <laughs> money we're making. You know, all those things, when it, it really comes back to the church's message is, you have dignity. And, and that's a tremendously important thing. But the church also says that men and women are different and we're made to be complementary, you know, which, which isn't a, um, a dismissing kind of thing like, oh, you're, you're – you're different and not as good as it says let's let's acknowledge fully who we are and and i think that's one of the things that feminism got wrong instead Mm -hmm. of instead of having a view of what it means to be a woman and saying make room for us as women in this culture in the in the work world in in society it said okay in order to participate we have to be more like men and that requires rejecting something that's very important to us. And, and I go back to the stats. If you ask women what they want, most women, when they have children, would prefer part-time or to be at home when those kids are young because, because they care. And then the other thing is it's true. Women sacrifice more than men do in terms of uh, foregoing a promo- promotion or not traveling or something. They, they make those sacrifices more often than men do. And if you just looked at that, you'd say, oh, women aren't equal, we're, we're held back. But when you ask women the, the next question, do you regret it? It's almost universal women say no. In other words, they want to follow their hearts. And, and when, so what we ask, what I think feminism ought to be asking of the workplace, here we are, what, 40, 50 years after, you know, after feminism, we still don't have the kind of flexibility that women need. We still don't have an understanding of the importance of relationships. And, and I think that's because the conversation was co-opted in those I feel years. I feel sometimes like women lost the feminist revolution in a very big way. We're the losers of the feminist revolution. Yeah. It was supposed to be fought by us and for, us and for us to liberate us. But when we look at what many women's lives are today in the United States, we are sometimes single, raising children by ourselves. Uh, if we're young, we are, we are objectified. Our, our, our value resides in our sexual attraction mm-hmm. to strangers, basically, on Instagram. And wh- how is that? I mean, where is the dignity? Where is the, where's the, the delightful life that women... You know, the delights for a woman in life are... I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to sound so traditional, but I say our homes... Our, our beautiful homes with our, our children that love us and and our ch- and our husbands that that support us and and make us um, make all that possible 
That sounds so traditional, and I'm so happy to say it and say it out right. loud on the podcast <laughs> where everybody can hear it. Right. But that is what makes me, and I can say that as a professional mm-hmm. woman too, mm-hmm. that my true happiness doesn't, I read in a dark room, I read x-rays and CTs and MRIs and ultrasounds in a dark room, but that's not where my happiness lies. I do the best I can there, right. and I'm happy I have that work. It's, it's noble work. But my happiness is at home. And I'm hearing more and more of that in surprising quarters. You know, the um, articles in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal where, where women are coming forward and saying, you know, this, this isn't working, trying to have it all at once on a man's terms, that we need to make room for women as women, and that we need to be able to say and not apologize for the fact that we care about family, mm-hmm. that we care about home, that our priorities are different, and that those are good things. That's when we, my husband and I had our 25th anniversary recently and I, and I told him, I had one of those sentimental moments and I said, thank you for letting me have all the children that we have. Yeah. Because for me to have a child is for my husband to work harder and to put up with, you know, the milk and the, <laughs> the sleepless nights and, right. and she's my wife, not your mother, at least not right now. Give her to me for a little bit. And, and we want that. We we want to be mothers, and the ch- culture has taken that away from us, that joy, in many yeah, ways. Yeah, I, I think because partly because we've lost that vision of, of men being fathers as well as women being mothers. And that, that when you're, you're fathers and mothers together, you're, you're building a family together. So you have to have that common vision. And that's different from just two individuals sort of riding side by side basically in the same direction. That, mm-hmm. That's not a vision for family life because when a child comes up, it's like, okay, you know, how do we fit this in? So part of it is helping our young people really envision family life and to look for a life partner who they can envision for women. Can you envision him as, as a father? Uh-huh. You know, young people nowadays, I have my oldest children are young adults and they're talking about getting married and they have serious relationships. And what I see in the, not in our family, but in the families around us, when we, and I talk about them getting married, you know, they're in their early 20s. Oh, they're too young, they're too young, they're too young. And what it occurs to me is that people have lost confidence in marriage. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. marriage, Because marriages fail and because our marriage culture is so broken, they've lost confidence. So they say... You can't jump into that marriage. You can't jump into marriage at this at, mm-hmm. at your early age because it, it you're it's likely going to it's more likely than not going to fail. And so here you're going to have this great failure on your hands. And that too, I mean, I was 24 when I got engaged, which sounds so young. Even now I'm like, was I crazy what the heck? But um, you know, a lot of people told me you're too young. And mm-hmm. I got that. And I, you know, um obviously got married and uh, now it's been almost 10 years and I'm so glad I didn't listen or wait or wait till I mean I think this is one of the unfortunate things is that Mm -hmm. to what you were saying earlier Mary that women aren't encouraged at all to think about these things when they're young um, or in college in fact they're strongly discouraged to do so Um, and then suddenly they're in their 30s and it's a challenge to find um, a quality man um, and find someone to settle down within these dreams that suddenly become very strong, prove very evasive. Um, Mary, you've written a lot about feminism and, uh, and, and sexuality in the church. What do you think about the debate about the use of the word feminism? This was a word that, uh, if I'm correct, Pope St. John Paul II used. He did. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, whether he would have used it today, I don't know. Um, but what do you think about the word? Is it redeemable? Um, 
what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's interesting that most women don't want to identify themselves as feminists. That's true. And I think that tells us something about the baggage that's accumulated around that, that word where it's become associated with women who, who think their freedom and, and their, their uh, rights or dignity, fulfillment, revolves around the right to a, an abortion, the right to cut people out of their lives and that it revolves around having an antagonistic attitude towards men and marriage and, and religion, which sort of stems back to the original Marxist feminists who really did look at um, women were oppressed. And, and yes, there were things that weren't right, but they named the wrong enemies, so to speak. And, and so the enemies became the patriarchy. And, and you still hear that word bandied around as, as what feminism is fighting. So I think it's not surprising that women are not fans of that label. I think what John Paul II was trying to do was, was to highlight that there were real, um, real needs for women's um, dignity to be respected under the law and for women to have more opportunities. And, and I love, there's a quote that he has in one of his encyclicals where he talks about it being particularly the task of women to shape the moral dimension of culture. And, and so we need that. So that's, that's the kind of thing he was talking about, that we need women in every sector of society in order for the, our world to be what it's supposed to be. So it, talking about feminism, feminism is on a collision course with transgender ideology, which is the cause du jour, the, the, the exciting thing out there. We, um, why do you think that these, it's almost like it's turning around and eating itself. Right, and one yeah. flows from the other, but they're both, op- but they're opposed in the end. Yeah, yeah, they are because um, I remember before Title IX, when there was no, you you didn't have women's sports teams and you didn't have those opportunities, and so feminism by insisting that that you make room for women did a, a good thing, but in the process we forgot what it means to be a woman, and so because feminism has become so identified with the progressive agenda which is all behind the LGBTQ and the, particularly the transgender agenda, they're caught. They're caught because the transgender agenda is not recognizing that there is a difference between men and women. And so we're seeing some unusual coalitions coming about <laughs> with uh, uh, some of the radical feminists, some of the lesbian feminists who are saying, no, we, we know there's a difference between men and women. So don't tell us that a man who is, you know, He's fully a man who just says, I'm a woman, gets to come into our private women's spaces, gets to come in when we're dressing, gets to uh, to beat us out in our sports events and, and things like that. Well, and one of the craziest things about uh, the push to replace um, the legal concept of sex with gender is that women could very soon find themselves in a place where they are the discriminators. They're actually violating a law that was intended to protect them in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah, and it's not scientific either. I mean, that's, right. that's one of the things. Let's go back to just the basic differences between men and women, and we found out so many more about, so many more things about that. And, and I'll leave you with one little fact. There's um, a study came out in March of 2019 that they can measure the differences in how brain connections work in the unborn child. Before there's any social influence, they can tell whether it's a male or female. Oh, I believe that. You know, that. so there is something different about men and women, and it's great to be a woman. 
It is great to be a woman. We get to do the most spectacular thing in the world, which is to bear a human life inside us. I can't think of anything more spectacular. Pretty or, amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Thank you so much, Mary Hassan, for joining us today. You're welcome. You know, that conversation was too short. Will you come back again? I'd and, love and to. And we can this do it again. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Hi, this is Andrea. Uh, I'm going to review the three TCA Clips articles that we thought we're a great uh, look into this week's media. The first comes from Crux Now, and it is titled, The Pope Saddened by Church Attack in Burkina Faso, Vatican Spokesman Says, written by Juno Orocho Estevez, and it was published on May 13th. And it talks about the attack on a church in Burkina Faso in Africa this past Sunday, May 12th, when motorcyclists entered the church and shot churchgoers trying to escape, killing six, including the parish priest, Father Simeon Yampa. The same day that the Crux article came out, another four people were killed during a Marian procession in celebration of Our Lady of Fatima. This piece and, and these tragedies are particularly important to me. In my parish every summer, a priest, Father Alphonse Cavore, from Burkina Faso, comes and stays with us. He's a professor of, in the seminary in Bobo Diolasso. He's lovely, he's tender, he's kind, he's well-formed, and he is a great uh, pastor to all of us while our parish priests are taking a break. I think we should all pray for the faithful of Burkina Faso and hope for peace soon. The second clip comes from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was published on May 15th, written by Anthony De Barros and Janet Adami, and it reports that the number of babies born in the U.S. last year fell to a 32-year low. And their article really highlights the fertility crisis that is facing the U.S., uh, reminiscent of what faced Europe not too long ago. And our last clip comes from the Washington Post, written by Robert Barnes. It was published on May 16th. And Mr. Barnes reports on the legal battles that are gearing up in response to the various state laws regarding abortion and its regulation. Mr. Barnes comments on the Supreme Court's approach to facing cases dealing with abortion, and he predicts that the court would take an incremental look at the continued legitimacy of Roe versus Wade. So those are the clips that we thought stood out this week, and we hope that you look to them, click on them at our podcast, and learn a little bit more to better inform yourself about things affecting our country and our church. You can find the links to these articles on the podcast show notes. To subscribe to the podcast and the media clips, go to thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. 
Please stay tuned for Father Landry, and do look up his daily homily, written and audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. Jesus is constantly trying to have with us conversations with consequences. He does that in personal prayer, and he does that in the Liturgy of the Word at Mass. And this Sunday's no different. And the consequence Jesus is looking for this weekend is very challenging. I give you a new commandment, he tells us. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. This is how all will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying that the distinctive mark of a Christian is that we love others with the love with which we have first been loved by God. What a high standard this is. In the Sermon on the Mount, you remember that Jesus told us that Pagans love those who love them. There's nothing so distinctive about loving those who have loved us first. But Jesus said that our love as Christians is supposed to model his, that we're called, like he did, to love even those who have made themselves our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to do good to those who do will to us. This is the distinctively Christian standard. How can Jesus call us to this? Pope Benedict once said he can call it to uh, he call us to it precisely because he has given us his love first. Later in the Last Supper, Jesus tells us, "Just as the Father loves me, so I love you." We know that the Father couldn't love the Son any more perfectly, and that is the perfect love with which Jesus has loved us. And because that love has been poured into our hearts, loving others by Christ's standard is possible. Jesus said no one has any greater love than to sacrifice his life for his friends. He's calling us to a life of sacrifice, to give of our time for others, to give of our work for others, even in some occasion to give of our life for others. Today's first reading, when St. Paul visited the church in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, he said it's necessary for us to suffer to enter into the kingdom of God. In order to truly live by the principles of the kingdom Jesus came to establish, we need to be willing to suffer for God and willing to suffer for others. We see in the first Christians that this is precisely the standard by which they lived. They sold their property, something most wouldn't even do for family members at that time, in order to lay the proceeds at the feet of the apostle to care for their fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, whoever needed anything. They prayed together. They went on pilgrimage together. They ate together. They forgave each other. They sought to live by this standard. Jesus is summoning us to that similar standard. One quick application of it is how we sacrifice of our time for others. Others sacrifice for our resources. And third, how we forgive others. In the book of Revelation this weekend, Jesus says to us, Behold, I am making all things new. And he gives us this new commandment precisely to make us new men and women by allowing his fresh love to change our life in such a way that that love overflows in our hearts to our family members, to our friends, and even those who aren't trying to be our friends. May this conversation with Jesus this week truly be consequential. God bless you all. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us today at Conversations with Consequences, and we'll see you next week.